Uh, our scripture reading today is Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. Michael Millette is our uh, scripture reader. Listen as I read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. We're in a, in a pretty short series, a four-week series called Presence. And last Sunday, we looked at this, the subject of, of Incarnation. And uh, this Sunday, we are looking at the Ascension. The, the goal of this series is I, I want us all together to see the links that God has gone to to recreate a world where his presence is more fully experienced by you and me and by everybody. And last week when we introduced the series, I, I just briefly talked about Exodus chapter 33. And what happens in Exodus 33 is pretty phenomenal. It's, it's early on in the, Israel, in the days of Israel and Moses uh, is interacting with God, and honestly, God has every reason in the world to just quit on Israel. They've been arrogant, they've been selfish, they've been rebellious, and uh, there's a real sense in which God's just like, I'm just going to wipe them out. And in, in Exodus 33, we find out that it says that Moses talked with God like a friend talks with, uh, like a man talks with his friend. Pretty phenomenal that Moses talks with God like a man talks with his friend. That kind of intimacy, that kind of connection. And as Moses talks with God about this reality of the rebellion and the arrogance of the people of Israel, Moses eventually says to God, all right, here's the deal. If you don't go with us, then just leave us here to die. He, he says to him, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. You know, the, the idea is your, your presence is so essential that life is not worth living if we don't have you, if you're, if you're not with us. And a really legitimate question is, how do you get there? How do you get to the place to where you recognize that the presence of God, if you don't have it, it's better off to just, just die, just call it. My guess is that most of us do not live like that. We don't wake up on a Tuesday morning and say, God, if you don't go with me today, just leave me in bed and let me die. Most of us don't have that kind of a desperation or a longing for God's presence. Why did Moses? How can we get there? Well, 
my suggestion is that we need to see the glory of his presence. You know, the word glory means weighty. And we, we need to see the glory of his presence. We need to see the significance of who he is and how he is with us, how he dwells among us. And Moses had a few different opportunities to see it and to experience it. And the Bible is full of indications that you and I have all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of ways that we meet with God on the pages of the Bible in communion with his people, listening to his spirit as we pray. And so the point of this series, the goal of this series, is that the presence of God becomes clearer, the way that God has been at work in the world to bring his presence to bear. So last Sunday, we looked at the incarnation. We looked at this reality of the physical presence of God on earth in the person of Jesus. Uh, Jesus as this ultimate temple, uh, the, the, the place where divine space and human space overlap. You know, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us that God was present here in the person of Jesus in a unique way, God with us. Now today might seem a little out of, space, out of, out of place then. Uh, this sermon series is called Presence, but today we talk about Jesus leaving. So if, if you think it's out of place, a, cu- a couple quick comments. First of all, today is Ascension Sunday, so we're preaching on the Ascension. So that's, that's, that's part of it. But a reason that Jesus left is a really significant part of the next expression of his presence with us. And so we'll we'll see that next week. But when Jesus talks about his departure, he says, I've got to go so that the next chapter can happen. And so part of Jesus' ascension is actually a necessary component for God's presence to be with us in an even more significant way, if you can believe it. And then, while Jesus does depart... He does go to be in the presence of someone else. Jesus does go to be in the presence of the Father. Um, And and it's probably more significant than most of us realize. So let's let's talk through this passage here in Acts chapter 1 and see how these things unfold. I want to start, though, with the the journey of of Jesus. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we we read of of him leaving but this, this might be helpful for, for us to just orient ourselves a little bit to the way that, that this story unfolds. So when theologians try to navigate the, 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 the journey of Jesus from the moment that he took on a human body, from the moment that he left heaven, and all the way forward, if, if you are trying to map that section from the moment that Jesus left heaven to take on a human body, future, everything forward, theologians often refer to two states of Jesus. The state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Humiliation is Jesus' departure from the Father's presence to us. And then Jesus' exaltation is Jesus' physical departure from us to the Father. And then, spoiler alert, back to us. So let me, let me, let me walk through these. Because each, each of these states has like four aspects some theologians try to slip a fifth one in there, but I think it's best way to say it's best to just say that there's four. So humiliation. Humiliation is the term that's used to recognize Jesus' departure from the Father's presence to us. And here are the four aspects: incarnation, suffering, death, and burial. So let's walk through those. The incarnation, it's what we talked about last week. It's where Jesus left all the glory of heaven. He left it all there, and he took on a human body. He was born, uh, you know, came into a teenager's womb, and was born into this world, 
the world he created. I, I love the word picture that God was so invested in, in, in fixing the problem on earth that he ripped off the lid and he climbed in himself to get his hands dirty, to take on a human body and get his hands dirty. And that is the story of the incarnation. Second aspect is the suffering. Jesus had a pretty hard life, especially his adult years that we know of. You know, at one point he says to his followers, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. As his ministry gets more public and the, the religious leaders and some from Rome, but mainly the Jewish religious leaders, as they get more and more upset with him, he faces more and more hardship, more and more ridicule. And eventually, during the last week of his life, he faces a great deal of torture. Third aspect is his death. As he hangs on that cross, he is further tortured. He is mocked as a fake king. And then he is murdered there. He is cursed on a tree. He's murdered in a way, or he's killed in a way that is reserved for the worst of the criminals. And even, even the crucifixion, many times they were tied to the tree. Jesus was nailed to the tree. And so as, as Jesus hung on that cross, uh, their attempt to, to embarrass him and to ridicule him, uh, he, he dies there on that cross, on that tree. Fourth aspect is his burial. He is taken from the tree and he is placed in a grave, in a tomb. You know, if you've attended any of our Good Friday services, uh, we haven't done them the exact same every year, but when we do a Good Friday service, they always have a sense of, of darkness to them. Uh, one of the services that we do for Good Friday, it results in progressively over the one hour service, the auditorium getting darker and darker and darker to where at the end of the service, uh, it, is, it is dark in this room, and the invitation to all of us is to leave in silence. And so it's a very awkward moment, but we all get up, and we walk out of this auditorium, and we don't say a word to each other, which is you know, weird in our culture, and we go all the way out to the parking lot and get in our cars, and, and we leave. And then we experience Saturday, the Saturday in between. And the Saturday in between is a, is a time of, of darkness. And we often invite you, if you want to, 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 to fast, to fast from something, to, 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 put, put, to, to put extra thought and effort into this reality of what would it be like to have Jesus in the grave, to have Jesus in the tomb. And as theologians map the, the journey of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, that, that the last aspect is him buried in the tomb with the, with the stone rolled in front. Well, thankfully, there's more news. There's really good news. And it's called the second, the second state of Jesus is his exaltation. And as Jesus is laying in that grave, we, we begin to see this, this next chapter of his story, which is Jesus' physical departure from our, pre, from our presence back to the Father and then back to earth as king. The four parts of that are resurrection, ascension, which we look at today, his seating, and his return. So let's walk through those quickly. Resurrection. As Jesus is buried in the grave, uh, three days later, why, you know, what we, we, we celebrate Easter Sunday for real. And actually, we celebrate every Sunday for real. Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? We gather on Sunday mornings because Christ rose from the dead. And when he did it, he conquered sin and Satan and all of our enemies. There's this incredible resurrection from the dead, raised from the tomb. The second aspect is his ascension, which we're looking at today. 
And this, is, this gives the, 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 the snapshot or the picture of Jesus being freed from all the brokenness of the world and being raised into heavenly bliss. So the first movement is him out of the grave. The second movement is him out of the earth. Off of the, out of the grave, off of the earth. The third aspect is his seating on the throne or him being seated on the throne. And this is him being exalted by God as the rightful king. That God looks at Jesus and accepts everything that Jesus did. Gives him the full of approval, full glorification. This, this recognition that he is the rightful king. He's glorified and he is honored. And then the fourth one is the return. Jesus coming back to this earth and bringing renewal to the whole world. He brings heaven's glory to earth. So sometimes theologians kind of map this journey as a journey of descent and, and you know of, of descension and then ascension or humiliation and exaltation. They'll actually like draw a little graphic and it's like a U-shaped graphic. There's a little uh, complication at the end because it actually comes all, comes all the way back down. Uh, but you, you, can see, you can see the movement. In the incarnation, Jesus comes and he leaves all the glories of heaven. But at the end of this, when he returns, he brings all the glories of heaven. He actually brings heaven itself back to earth, to a remade world. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of the work of Jesus and so the, these two states, they're often, you know, this, this U-shape is a way for us to start to, to piece together what is Jesus doing? What, what is he doing from the moment he left heaven into the future? And listen, brothers and sisters, we, we're, we can check off seven of the boxes. That's pretty good news, huh? I, I can't wait for box eight. Uh, we've been waiting for, for a couple thousand years. But when you look at the journey of Jesus, we're down to the last box. And this is really good news. And so my, my point in sharing this all with you is that understanding the bigger story helps us understand the individual parts. And so today, let's take a little bit of time and focus in on the ascension of Jesus, that second aspect in the second state. As the disciples here in, in Acts chapter 1, they are, um, boy, they are uh, in it with Jesus. They've been in it with Jesus. And what we see is that they are now confused. That, not that this is a new development. They're, they're confused pretty frequently. Um, you know, Jesus has transitioned from the state of humiliation to the state of exaltation, but the good old disciples, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not quite sure what's happening. Um, you know, they're literally staring into the clouds. I mean, that's what it says. That there are 11 at this point. Uh, Judas is, uh, has committed suicide, so he's not with them. But there are 11 gazing up into the clouds. I mean, you know, Think of the Instagram picture of this, right? Eleven adult men just staring up into nothingness, up into the clouds. And, you know, when I look up, it's not uncommon for my, my chin, to, you know, for my mouth to be gaping. It's just like, you know, eleven adult men staring into the sky with their mouths hanging open. It's quite a, quite a scene to, uh, to envision. But I think we can have some, some, some mercy. I think we can have some patience with them. Because if you think about the last six weeks, like, nothing has gone according to plan. Nothing. Because th their plan was so different than Jesus' plan. So what happened? Well, Jesus died. They didn't think Jesus was going to die. Afterwards, they start to realize, oh, yeah, he told us that. I mean, the lights eventually come on for them. But when it happens, they're all freaking out. They're, they're, all, they're all scared to death. 
They didn't think Jesus was supposed to die. But then he rises again. And I don't know if they expected that to happen or not. But it happened. And you have to assume that this is good news. And so it's like, okay, he, he's back. But then he keeps disappearing. It's spotty. For 40 days, it's like he's there for breakfast, but then, then he's not there for lunch. And it's just like these in and out, this, this, this kind of a blinky, spotty existence where they don't really know when he's coming, when he's going. And so it's just these appearances of, of Jesus, and they probably don't know what to do or think about that. And now it's like a scene from The Matrix. You know, he just flies up into the sky, into the clouds, and he is literally gone. They can't see him anymore. He has disappeared. So I, if, if, you know, I, I think we can have some patience for the disciples. N none of these things probably make a whole lot of sense for them. Their plan was not like this at all. Their plans haven't been playing out at all. And maybe that's a point in which we can actually relate to how they felt. Because it's real possible that you're here and your life is not playing out like you thought. That your plans are not working like you thought they would work. That as you're walking through the journey of your life, you're experiencing unexpected trials. Trials that are way worse than you would have guessed or thought. Maybe there's unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled dreams. And you're looking in the mirror and saying, I didn't think I would be this age and this would be true. And problems like this take a long time to fix. Am I going to be alive long enough to see this problem fix? Am I going to be able to solve this problem? Maybe it's lost relationships. Maybe it's betrayal. Maybe it's your own personal failure. That you're looking at, at, at your plan and you thought, man, I'll never fall into those kinds of traps. Those kinds of addictions those kinds of temptations, those kinds of failures. And yet here we are. It, it is very easy to get frustrated and confused by the state of life. And I think when we look at the disciples and recognize that they don't know what's going on, maybe we can relate to not really knowing what's going on. The disciples are confused. Now their confusion, uh, you'd say, well, is there more specifics? But yeah. Actually, it's hinted at in verses 6 through 11, what they're confused about. And in some ways, their confusion isn't that different than the confusion that we face about the world in which we live. And maybe you're experiencing that confusion to have amplified over the last five or six years. And so, so let me just show you two ways in which the disciples are, are, are revealing some level of confusion. And the, and the first point of confusion is this. They want political power. That, that, that's, what, that's what they're after. In verse 6, this is what they say. So when they had all come together with Jesus, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you now, will you at this time, restore the kingdom? Restore the kingdom to Israel. You know, Jesus, isn't it time to restore the kingdom? That is a political statement. All 12 of the disciples that Jesus selected, they were all Jews. And the average Jew would have understood the Messiah to be one who was going to come and rule and reign as a king, who was going to put Israel back on top, back in the spot they should be in. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus pick 12 disciples? Well, there's at least one reason. 
And it's because they, they, it's to correlate. It's to be a trigger to the 12 tribes of, of Israel. That Jesus is saying, I'm coming to renew and restore the people of God. I'm doing something new with the people of God. And as they had a, a, a mental picture, they had an understanding of the Messiah, their Messiah was a political figure. He was a figure who was going to come as a king and reign and rule. In their context, in the first century, they totally expected the Messiah to overthrow Rome and give the primary spot back to Israel. I mean, back in the day, Israel was the top of the heap. They were the best. They had the most money. They had the best army. Jerusalem was theirs. Now Jerusalem is under the thumb of, the, of, of, of Rome. And they, they want Jesus to solve this. And they're saying, if you're the Messiah, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what we want you to do. You know, to a normal Jew, the Messiah's job was to put us back in charge. But you know, there's a point in time in Jesus' ministry when he looks at his followers, and this is what he says to them. You are going to have to lose your life if you want to experience real life. And it's like here in Acts 1, Jesus almost needs to say to them, you are going to have to lose your kingdom dream if you want to be part of the real kingdom. You're shooting too low. It's too small of a target. You're wanting Israel to be back on top? Like that, that's what you think the solution to this is? You know, Israel's thinking if we could just be in charge, then the world would be made right. Just give it, you know, put us back in charge. Give us the power. You know, we sing a song here occasionally, and one of the, one of the uh, parts of the chorus, I think sometimes we actually, we, we might misunderstand it. It'd be easy to misunderstand as we sing it. But it says that power is a siren song. And a siren song is a, is a reference to, uh, to back when, when shipping was the main, the main way of, of, of uh, distributing things. And they, they would refer, sailors would refer to the siren song of like actually being like lured into the rocks. Like getting lost at sea, getting, getting lured into this area, into the rocks of the ocean. You don't want to be lured into the rocks of the ocean. A siren song is a temptation. It's a wooing. It's a, it's a promise of something that actually isn't true. And when we sing that song and we say, power sings a siren song, what we're saying is this, not that power itself is bad, but that power is it, it's telling you that it can give you something that it can't actually give you. It's suggesting that it can solve all the problems and it can't actually solve all the problems. These disciples had that mentality. They still were of the view that if Israel could be restored, then the world would be made right. Do you think that? Substitute Israel for America. Or substitute Israel for Christian. Do you you think that if we could be in charge of the government, we'd be back? Do you think if this candidate could be in the Oval Office or if this candidate could get out of the Oval Office, we'd be okay? Do you think if there's a certain piece of legislation that would get passed or a certain piece of legislation that would get overturned, that, that then, then everything would be okay? Or do you, you fill in the blank? What is it that you think if that could be fixed, if that, if, if that aspect of could, be, could be returned, then it'd all be good? If we could get back in the seat of power, then it'd all be good. 
You see, just like the first century, Jesus knows that the problem is so much bigger than that. And now I'm not saying that everything's neutral. Some candidates are better than other candidates. Some laws are wicked and need to be overturned. Some laws are, 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 are wicked and should never get passed. Everything is not neutral. I'm not saying that for a second. But what I'm telling you is this. Even if Israel would have got, the, got, got their power back, how long would it have lasted? Even if it lasted a few centuries, would it have held? Don't we know enough about human history to know that it wouldn't have worked out? Don't, don't you know that if your candidate gets, gets the Oval Office, how's that going to work out? Power sings a siren song. It tells you that it can solve these problems, and it can't. And the disciples are looking at Jesus and saying, give us our political power. And Jesus is after something so much bigger than that. The second point of confusion is it seems like maybe they want an earthly eject button. In verses 10 and 11, they are still gazing into the heavens. And angels show up, and look at what the angels say in verse 11. Uh, hey, guys, uh, why do you stand gazing, still gazing into the heavens? Why, 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 are you, why are you looking up there? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so they say, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to look up there right now. You, you, you actually, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. But it seems like maybe they are just thinking, Jesus, you forgot us. Maybe this relates a little bit to the sense of like, can I just get out of here? This place is God forsaken. This earth is going to hell in a handbasket. This is a mess down here. I want out. This, this sense of the earth as something that's un, like unimportant. Like, Jesus, just get us out of here. Jesus, just give us an eject button. Only thinking about some far-off reality that actually ends up ignoring the world we live in. You see, the first is too earthly, and the second is too heavenly. Are you too earthly? Now, I'll give you an indication that you might be more in the earthly category. You, you know what the, the most common responses to the world are if you're in that category? Anxiety? And, and like a need to fix it. Like just a, a, a drive to fix it. You're anxious and you need to fix it. And you may even compromise to try to fix it. And I'm not suggesting that you want to be the president of the United States. I mean, it kind of takes a narcissist to want to be the president of the United States. I'm talking about your own life. I'm talking about the stuff going on around you. That the, the potential that you're maybe too earthly focused is that, that you've lost sight of what God's doing in the world and you become so concerned with the here and now that anxiety rules you and you have this drive or this, this need to see it fixed. If you're too heavenly... A way that it commonly shows up is you're annoyed. You're frustrated with everybody. You're frustrated with the world. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands anything. You want to just ignore it or ignore people. But what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is about something so much bigger and something so much better. So what, what does his ascension mean? What, what's, what's this about? Well, Jesus' ascension, I mean, it reveals a few important realities for our present and for our future. And, and here's what I want to try to help you see. 
Jesus is bringing a care for the earthly and a desire for the heavenly together. He he is bringing those two things together. See, Jesus told them he was coming back. If you hop back to John's gospel, you can read this. Jesus says, I'm going to go, but then I'm going to come back. Jesus tells them that he's going to restore everything. And yet, he crystal clear tells them, do not worry about the timeline. Look look at verse 7 of this chapter. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He literally says to them, you don't have to worry about that at all. Listen, brother and sister, do you know how good a news that is? You don't have to worry about that at all. Not at all. You know, I, I, I was a, in high school in the early 90s. And for some reason, there was a little window of time where just a number of people were making these audacious claims about the end of the world. And I'm 45, so if you're 45 or older, you might remember these, these great proclamations that the world is going to end on like March 11th, 1991 or something like that. Well, I was a pastor's kid at a public school in a small town. And as these little declarations would happen every year or so, all the kids at my lunch table were asking me if it's true. Is the world going to end on March 11th? And expecting me at the age of 15 to be able to give them an answer to whether or not these predictions were correct. But the reason I bring it up is this. All these kids at my table who didn't show any interest in Jesus, didn't attend church, were all of a sudden captivated by the timeline. And guess what? Millions and millions of adults were too. Lots and lots of people were captivated with the timeline, with the effort to draw charts. And charts aren't bad. You can take, take Revelation and try to draw a chart if you want to. It'll be wrong. But you can try to do that uh, if, if you want to. Jesus says you don't have to worry about it at all. I mean, I I don't know if that's as good news to you as it is to me, but that is really good news. You don't have to worry about the timeline at all. And then he says, and helps on the way. He actually says, I don't want you to go anywhere. I want you to stay in Jerusalem because help is on the way. And we will... uh, We'll talk about that next week. But what this results then, as Jesus is bringing the earthly and the heavenly together, is a phrase that we use around here sometimes. And it's the already, not yet. That what's happening is that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he really did conquer sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies. And we ascended to the Father, he really did sit down at God's right hand. And he really was exalted and glorified and honored as the, as the true king. That, that all happened. It's already It's already begun. Jesus, in that sense, has already been inaugurated as king. But it's not yet here in full. That that has happened, but it hasn't been brought here yet. And so we live in this in-between, this time that's often referred to as the already, not yet. On the one hand, Jesus is, is the enthroned Messiah. He really is the Messiah. The disciples thought the plan would go different, but he is who they were waiting for. His rule has begun, but on the other hand, it's not on earth yet. It's not here in full yet. You know, this weekend I started reading a book by an author named Mark Sayers, and uh, it's, it's, it's just, it just released, and it's an effort to try to understand what's going on in our culture, especially over these last five to ten years. And the title of the book is A Non-Anxious Presence. 
And part of what Mark Sayers is suggesting is that we right now are in what he calls a gray zone. And a gray zone happens every once in a while. It doesn't happen very often, but they happen every once in a while where one era is ending and another era is beginning. And there's a little overlap of eras to where the previous era can kind of tell that it's dying. And so it has all the, 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 you know, the throes of, of, of its, its last gasps and it tries harder to hold on and it tries harder to survive. And there's people in that, in, 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 alive and in the world who totally see that as the valid way of, of the world working. And then there's this new era that's showed up and there's some people in the culture that think that way and live that way, but it is a dramatic contrast to what was. And he calls it a gray zone. And you know, as I was reading that book this weekend, I was just like, well, Christians should be experts at this. This, should, this is our jam. The in-between. The already not yet. Christ enthroned and yet not here literally. Not here in person. We live in the in-between. Listen, the life of a Christian is a gray zone. And for us to be able to not be anxious, for us to be able to live through the gray zone as a non-anxious presence, boy, that, that, that will, that'll preach. Preach without words to your neighbor and to your coworkers and to the people in your life. This modeling of what it's like to walk through the world as it feels like it's falling apart as it swirls around you with all kinds of varied realities. That's the gray zone. And for the Christian, we should know all about the gray zone. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you this so that you have peace. The next phrase doesn't make any sense. I tell you this so you have peace. You will have trouble. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thanks for that. You'll have no, what he means is this. You will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. So I tell you this that you might have peace. You're in the gray zone. You're in the gray zone. It's all, I'm already king, but it's not here in full. I've conquered sin, death, Satan, and all of our enemies, but the effects are still here. The world is still broken. You're still going to feel it. You're still going to have trouble. And yet Jesus' mind says, I'm going to tell you this so you have peace. You're going to have trouble, but I've overcome the world. Already. Not yet. Life in a gray zone. Modeling a non-anxious presence. Recognizing that, 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 that the biggest thing going on is God crafting the story of the world to where the end result is a world made new. Boy, that'll let you put your head on the pillow at the end of the day. So three quick takeaways from the ascension. We have a mission now. Jesus says to his disciples, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem because I'm sending some help. We'll talk about that next week. But in verse 8 then, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you, we're standing here in Jerusalem, I want you to take this news, this good news about me, and I want you to take it out to Judea. And you know what, not just, not just out to Judea, but let's go a little further, let's go to Samaria. And he's like, actually, let's go further than that. Let's go all the way to Traverse City, Michigan. Let's go all the way to the ends of the earth. And man, it has happened. A few weeks ago, our church celebrated its 100th anniversary, and that's phenomenal. But for 2,000 years, the gospel has been making its way across the globe to the uttermost parts of the earth. And almost 200 years ago, the gospel made it to Traverse City. 
And, and uh, missionaries were here to share the gospel with, with, with native people. Like That's what Jesus wanted to see happen. You see, the point is this. When Jesus ascended back to the Father, we did not get left here on accident. We were given a mission. Think about the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples before he ever ascended. He said, here's, here's what I want you to pray. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We got some work to do here on the dirt of this earth. There's some invitation. There's a, conquer, there's a conquering king who's returning. That's, that's, the, that's the already, but he hasn't yet returned. That's the not yet. We got some work to do, and we get to be part of it. N.T. Wright calls it God's putting it right project, and you're invited into it. It's pretty phenomenal. Uh, next week, we'll talk a little bit about the power that helps us on the mission or that fuels the mission. And what we're going to see is that the ascension of Jesus is not the loss of Jesus. It's actually better than that, if you can believe it. Secondly, he will come again and he'll bring it in full. Remember the two states, humiliation and exaltation? We're waiting for the last box, the return of Jesus. You see, when he ascended to the Father, it was part of a cosmic plan. And we get to be part of it as witnesses on earth. But what are we witnesses to? We're witnesses to the good news about Jesus. A God who is so committed to righting the wrongs that sin has poured out on the earth, the wrongs that sin has poured out on humans, that God himself took on a human body and he lived a perfect life, he suffered death, which means separation, and not just separation from his body, but separation from his heavenly father, which is the worst kind of separation, who then rose from the grave, and when he did, he conquered sin, Satan, death, and all of our enemies. He's now uh, ascended back to the Father. And he's soon coming to wipe away all sin from the earth and make all things new. But let me ask you, if Jesus is coming back to wipe away all sin, then how in the world am I supposed to survive that? Because it doesn't take me two minutes to realize that my resume is a train, train wreck. That I'm full of brokenness and failing and sin. And if Jesus says, I'm coming back to the earth to wipe away all sin, then that means Matt Heron gets wiped away with it. What is my hope in Jesus' return? Well, this is the good news of the gospel. The hope is that if I've come to Christ, then I am now in Christ. I'm covered in his righteousness. I am now, when, when, when judgment comes, I am exempted from the judgment because Jesus has actually literally taken all my sin. I don't survive the judgment because I'm so good. I survive the judgment because I am in Christ by faith alone. It's a total gift that he would do that. The only way that we can survive the return of Jesus is if Jesus actually can take away my sin. And that is the promise of the gospel that all you have to do is ask. And that's why we want the whole world to hear the gospel. Well, in between Jesus' departure and his return, we are on mission. But let me close with this, and I hope, this, I hope you experience this as some sort of a, almost like a, just a bear hug from, from Jesus. In the meantime, Jesus now intercedes and prays for you. You know that? In a unique way, in a way that he didn't before, as a glorified and exalted Lord. You know, we, we just talked about his, him being seated 
on the right hand of God, at the right hand of God, at the Father. It doesn't mean that he sat down and he never got back up. That's not what that means. Jesus is, is active for his people. And in just a few chapters in the book of Acts, we see a guy named Stephen who is preaching the gospel and he is murdered. He is stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And as he is laying on the ground dying, God in his grace gives him a vision of heaven. And do you know what Stephen sees up in heaven? He sees Jesus standing at the throne of God. That, that is the description of a lawyer. That, that is Jesus standing on behalf of Stephen. And as Stephen is dying, he is deeply comforted by the fact that Jesus stands in his place. That Jesus stands on his behalf. And he is comforted as he leaves this earth. As he loses his life. He finds great peace and comfort in the reality that Jesus stands on his behalf. Brother and sister, that's true for you too. That, that Jesus is the one who now stands before the Father and represents you. If, you are, if you've come to Christ in faith, you're in Christ. You're clothed in his righteousness. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. Jesus is praying for you. You're not navigating the world by yourself. He cares about you. He knows your name. The book of Hebrews says he is our great high priest. You know, John likes to talk about him as one who's been glorified. Paul likes to talk about him as one who's been exalted. It's all true. He's our priest. He's, our, he's praying for us. He's our lawyer. He's exalted. He's glorified. It's all true. And it's on your behalf. So as we head to the table today, and you take the bread and the cup. My invitation to you today is to consider the significance of Jesus as an exalted king who knows you by name and who prays for you before the Father. The bread represents his body. The, the, the juice, the cup represents his, 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 his uh, blood. If he didn't do that, then we are all hopeless. But since he did, and is now ascended back to the Father, this is really good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for all he has done on our behalf. We thank you that even now he stands before you, uh, representing us, substituting himself in our place, taking my train wreck resume and giving me his perfect resume. What a beautiful picture of an exalted, glorified king. And God, we do long. We long for the moment when he comes back and does that on earth where he has made all things new and he is with us. But thank you that we don't have to worry about the timeline. We can be faithful witnesses right now. We can be faithful, non-anxious presence in the world that we are in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.